Every good story ends with a list of names, a cast of people who helped make this story and make the story worth telling. In literature, this is called the acknowledgments. When an author includes this section, he or she is recognizing that a story is never told by one person, but by a host of people. In short, it takes a crowd. I think of this every time I read the list of names in Hebrews 11. A crowd of witnesses. The acknowledgement section of every saint's story. Indeed, we only have faith because of their faithfulness. And not just this list. We could all write our own living crowd of witnesses, the men and women who have contributed to our faith story. In this way, our faith is not our own. This is a beautiful thing. It is the right way, and yet, it is not enough. Let me explain. In the fifth book of the comic science fiction classic, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Arthur Dent finds himself traveling the universe after the destruction of Earth, shopping for a new planet when he suddenly faces an existential crisis. The available worlds looked pretty grim. They had little to offer him because he had little to offer them. He had been extremely chastened to realize that although he originally came from a world which had cars and computers and ballet, he didn't by himself know how any of it worked. He couldn't do it. Left to his own devices, he couldn't build a toaster. He could just about make a sandwich, and that was it. Many of us have had Arthur's experience. Suddenly we are faced with the task of doing something for the first time that has always been done for us. Maybe your existential crisis happened in the laundry room of your freshman dorm room. Okay, which one's the washer again? Or in the kitchen of your first rented apartment, staring at the pots and pans, Googling recipes. Or at the car dealership. Or in front of TurboTax. Or with a checkbook and bills spread across a desk, sitting alone in your house for the first time in 50 years. We are dependent on each other. Living in a fantastic world of technology and relationships, yet not knowing ourselves how it all works. This is both beautiful and frightening at the same time. And it is also true about our faith. What happens when the great crowd of witnesses is not accessible to us? When we are called upon to articulate our faith by ourselves? When life circumstances separate us from the faithful people who feed our faith? We can just about make a faith sandwich, and that is it. Or think about it this way. In a letter to Robert Hooke, Isaac Newton reflects on his indebtedness to previous thinkers for his intellectual progress. If I have seen a little further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. We see further. We see it all because we stand on the shoulders of giants. But if we've only ever used our feet to stand on the shoulders of giants, we will not have learned to use our feet to run. Our faith is not our own, but we must own our faith. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. In Hebrews 11, we have examples of people who not only realized that their faith was not their own, but who also owned their faith. They not only stood on the shoulders of giants, they became giants. Their names show up twice on the list. Once as a part of someone else's by faith moment, and then again because of their own by faith moment. Moses shows up in today's passage, but not for his faith. He is a supporting character in the faith story of his parents. Their faithfulness is a gift to Moses. But as we will see in the next few weeks, he will have to make it his own and have his own by faith moments. And we start here, instead of jumping right into the narrative, because it's what the author of Hebrews wants us to catch in the therefore transition between chapter 1, chapters 11 and 12. These by faith moments are meant to empower you to experience your own by faith moments. Many of us have been side characters in the by faith story of our parents, our friends, our spouse or our church, but we have yet to have our own by faith story. Although we come from a fantastic world of arcs and altars, of blessings and promised land, of creation and covenant, left to our own devices, we can just about sit in a church pew and that is it. Although we stand on the shoulders of spiritual giants, dead and alive, we've never put our own feet on the ground. To borrow last week's metaphor, we've been handed the baton, but we've never run with it. Our faith is not our own, but we must own our faith. And so as we come to today's passage and climb up onto the shoulders of Moses' parents, let us see what they want us to see and in turn be encouraged to live our own by faith stories. It was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born. They saw that God had given them an unusual child. Some of us have thought that. And they were not afraid to disobey the king's command. Now, as a student of the scriptures, the first thing you might notice about this story, and indeed the other stories listed in Hebrews 11, is, is that there is a lot missing. These are snapshots of the Old Testament narrative. Much of the scene is cut off. It's like you have that perfect photo for Instagram, but you go to upload it and it won't fit the square. Important people or the landscape is missing. Now we can be sure that the author chooses to include that what the author chooses to include is intentional. He or she is trying to get us to see certain things, but we can also be confident that it's just an introduction and that the first listeners heard not only what was highlighted, but the stories in their entirety. They saw the whole picture. So I know we've heard it already, but let's look once again to, part, to the parts of Exodus 1 and 2 our story comes from. Eventually a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, Look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. 
If we don't and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from the country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Remesis as supply centers for the king. And the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in all their demands. Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Pua. When you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live too. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives. Why have you done this? He demanded. Why have you allowed the boys to live? The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, the midwives replied. They are more vigorous and have their babies so quickly that we cannot get there in time. So God was good to the midwives. And the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. About this time, a man and woman from the tribe of Levi got married. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, She got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. The baby's sister then stood at a distance, watching to see what would happen to him. Soon Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river, and her attendants walked along the riverbank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it for her. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children's, she said. Then the baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you, she asked. Yes, do, the princess replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me, the princess told the baby's mother. I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. Later, when the boy was older... His mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her own son. The princess named him Moses, for she exclaimed, I lifted him out of the water. Here's a picture of me waiting while Jamie is in the operating room starting her C-section for our twins, Eliza and Ezra. Maybe. Yeah, there it is. They told me they'd be back in 15 minutes. 25 minutes later, they came back. They forgot me. They forgot me for 10 minutes into the surgery. Just 10 minutes. But those 10 minutes were some of the longest minutes of my life. What is happening? Is something going wrong? Why aren't they coming to get me, I thought. And then here are the first pictures I ever took of the E-team in the NICU. Hooked up to machines that breathe for them. 
us unable to hold them for a couple days. For three weeks, we basically lived in the NICU. Now, we are incredibly blessed and thankful to have two healthy, now eight-month-old twins. But that experience taught me how fragile and dangerous having a child and being a new parent is. Even when everyone around you, medical staff, friends, and family are on your side, working and praying for the health of your babies. What I don't know is what it's like to face all of that and then to have external forces working against you, seeking to kill your baby. Pharaoh ordered all his people to throw babies in the Nile. There wasn't a safe place to hide. Parenting is dangerous and challenging by itself. In fact, I read an article this week that said parenting teens is like hugging a cactus. But imagining parenting under a genocidal king, that's got to be like hugging a cactus while you're sunburned in a desert sandstorm surrounded by angry rattlesnakes. Don't let the familiarity of the story and historical distance keep you from experiencing how frightening this passage is. Parents hiding a baby. This is a story of survival, of doing whatever it takes to keep him alive. This isn't should we do disposable or cloth diapers, public or private school, let our child watch SpongeBob or not. By the way, the answer is no. Just kidding. But should I risk hiding the child longer or drop him into a volatile river in enemy territory, which, by the way, seems negligent, but was actually brilliant. No wonder Moses' parents make this list. Pharaoh tells his people to throw the Israelite male babies in the Nile. Where, then, is the last place they would look for the child? The Nile. And yet, imagine the gut-wrenching moment when the mother, on her knees, prepares the basket, waterproofing it with extreme care, Part of her heart wonders if this will work, if this is foolishness. Yet, another part, the same part that impressed upon her the uniqueness of this child when he was born, reassures her that someone else is looking out for the boy. She trusts that voice. Where did she get a faith like that? It was given to her. This special child was not hers. It never was hers. Whose is this child really? Where did he come from? He was a gift. He was God's. She received him so she could have faith to release him. Here's the secret that Moses' mother knew. All faith starts with God's faith. Our faith in God always begins with God's faith in us. Moses was a unique child. Moses was God's redemptive plan for Israel and the world. The stakes were high, and he trusted the fate of his leader to these human parents. Yes, it was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born. But first, it was by faith that God, when he wanted to rescue all of Israel, trusted a man and woman from the tribe of Levi. The entirety of Hebrews 11 could be read this way. By faith, God dared to trust Noah with the impossible task of preserving humanity and proclaiming God's promise. It was by faith that God asked an old man in Abraham to leave his home and start a people. It was by faith that God trusted Sarah to carry the promise even when she laughed at him. And on and on. Don't trust the subtitles in your Bible. This isn't the crowd of witnesses' story. It is God's story and their role in it. Yes, this is a story of their faith. But first, it is a story of God's faith in them. And so Moses' mother released him because she never lost sight of the truth that she received him. 
How much faith could you have in God if you knew how much faith God had in you? How much faith could you have in God if you knew how much faith God had in you? Moses' parents had faith in God because they believed God had faith in them. Not only that, but God also gave them partners. When we step into the snapshot of Hebrews 11 and explore the whole scene of Exodus 1 and 2, what we find is that although Moses' parents are singled out, there are other essential characters who not only help Moses' parents in their faith story, but also have their own by-faith moments. There's a crowd of witnesses within each crowd of witnesses. Look at our one verse for today. From it, we find the following by-faith moments. The Israelite midwives, ordered to kill all baby boys by faith, disobeyed Pharaoh, sparing all the Israelite boys, risking their own execution. Moses' sister, by faith, watches over her baby brother while he's in the Nile and boldly approaches Pharaoh's daughter, offering to get a Hebrew woman to nurse the child for her. By faith, when the princess saw the child in the reeds, asked her maid to bring him to her. By faith, the princess felt sorry for the child. By faith, gives him back to the mother to nurse. And by faith, dangerously defies her father, risking her own life to adopt and raise Moses on, as her own. There is faith happening at both ends of the river and everywhere in between. Parenting is a series of receiving and releasing your child. Dedicating them, dropping them off at school for the first time, sending them to college, giving them away in marriage, moving them across the country. Notice that in this passage alone, the mother releases her child at least twice. Once in the Nile and then once again after being allowed to nurse him. Looking ahead, it would be another season of releasing Moses for his mother when he fled Egypt his fate unknown to her. With each transition, however, she has support. Moses' sister, the princess, later Jethro, Zipporah, Aaron. Moses' mother and father were not alone in this. As he called them to release Moses, he stirred Pharaoh's daughter to receive him. And if I could speak to the parents in the room for a moment, the good news is that you are not alone either. As God calls one to release by faith, he calls another to receive by faith. And what is beautiful about the local church is that those people are often in the same room. Some of you in this room are in a season of releasing your child to preschool, to high school, to college, to a sports team, maybe to Splash or JC Body Shop. While some in this room are the very ones receiving your child, teachers, professors, coaches, doctors, pastors, grandparents, mentors. So do as Moses' mother did. Hold them close and get them ready, carefully waterproofing their basket. But when the seasons require it, trust the river, because hiding them any longer is much more dangerous than the river. And partner with those at the river's edge who come alongside your child as Moses' sister did, and then invest and add value to the ones who receive your child at the other end of the river. Moses needed them all to survive. His parents, the midwives, his sister, the princess. Your child needs a village too. Your child needs a crowd of witnesses. I'm not sure where on the helicopter to free-range parenting spectrum this kind of parenting lands, but I know it's only possible by faith. By faith in a God who has faith in us, 
and who calls others to receive as we release the children he gave us. Now, I believe this is God's vision for children's and youth ministry. Not a, it's not a few hours a week in which we entertain them, but where we offer relationships from multiple generations that are partnerships. Partners like the characters in Exodus 2 who run alongside the shore and watch out. Patching the waterproof basket when needed, reinforcing your training, praying your prayers for your children with you, receiving them for a season, always releasing them back to you. Your faith story is our faith story. Maybe you're a parent today and you are in a season of releasing. You are at a shore of transition with your children or maybe a shore of frustration. You need to release your child to God because you don't know what else to do anymore. Or maybe you are pregnant or adopting and are in a, a season of receiving. Or maybe you aren't a parent or soon-to-be parent, but God is asking you to be at the other end of the river or somewhere in between, ready to receive a child. You are being prompted to mentor, to become a prayer partner, or to volunteer. Or God is asking you to have more faith in the significant role you already play for families as an educator, counselor, coach, grandparent, or friend. But maybe you feel like Moses today. Who you need to release is yourself. You look at the river and you are in it, a season of change, unknown waters. You are holding on tight, but God is asking you to release your grip. Or maybe what God is calling you to release or receive isn't a person, but it's an idea, a project, a job, a place, a dream. Releasing it might look like finally going for it or finishing it or sharing it with someone. Receiving it might look like making space in your life for something new. Let me be clear, this isn't about releasing sins or bad things in your life. It's about realizing that holding too tightly to the good things can lead to sin. Faith is a cycle of receiving and releasing. So we don't forget where the good things in our life come from, to whom they really belong and whose story this really is. Faith in that way is a stewardship check. So let me ask you one more time. How much faith could you have in God if you knew how much faith God had in you?